Today we're continuing our series through the book of Titus, um, and we're get, continuing in chapter one. Um, we are talking about how Paul is writing a letter to his trusted companion, his young protege named Titus, uh, to help establish the fledgling church in Crete on a good foundation. Okay, and we saw last time uh, that Paul sees his ministry. Uh, as one of bringing into time-space fruition the eternal plans of God. And so uh, Paul understands that the gospel, that is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, is, is the, the culmination, the climax of human history. Is God fulfilling His eternal purposes and plans, and now through the church, He is extending that grace, that promise to the world through the proclamation of the gospel of which, to, for which Paul was appointed an apostle and, and teacher and preacher. Okay? And so Paul is fulfilling that ministry and he's fulfilling it everywhere he goes and in this particular case he's, he's wanting to see it fulfilled in the life of Titus through the, uh, through the church in Crete. So that's what we're going to be talking about in Titus chapter 1. Let me pray for us one more time. We'll get started here. Lord Jesus, we just ask for your help now as we look afresh at the book of Titus. God, I pray that you would grant us insight into the meaning of Scripture, that you would illumine it by your Spirit, that you would help us to see um, this word that was inspired by you nearly 2,000 years ago, written down um, through the Apostle Paul, for our instruction today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to take it to heart, that you would apply it to our lives as a church, that it would be our conviction as a church to have, as we're going to talk about today, gospel-led leaders. And that you would, as Paul saw it in the, on the island of Crete, um, uh, um, to plant a church in a Cretan world, God, I pray that you would help us as a church to be built upon the firm foundation of the gospel to be the church, we might say, uh, in a Cretan world. And so help us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so, for Paul, right, wherever the gospel is preached and believed upon, and people come to saving knowledge of him, there a church is established. And so notice that Paul's ministry, Paul's strategy is what? That wherever he goes, he preaches the gospel. Not everybody, but some believe the gospel. And then when they believe, they are brought into churches. Always. Okay? Maybe with just a few rare exceptions where there's not, where there's just so few believers. Okay? But anywhere the gospel is preached and believed upon, and there is any decent number of believers, those believers should be and always were gathered into churches. And then the churches had certain structures and orders that Paul always set up, including um, the appointment of elders, as we're going to be talking about today. And that's the first step that we see here in the book of Titus is Paul instructing Titus on the island of Crete that he left him behind for the, the first purpose, and that is to appoint elders. And so what we're going to be talking about today, and the rest of chapter 1 really, is gospel-led leaders. Gospel-led leaders. From Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. If you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's words. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might, appoint, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. 
For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The word of God. You may be seated. So we're going to be talking about gospel-led leaders. And you'll notice there that he uses two different terms there, as we've talked about before, for the one office. In verse 5, he calls them elders. Um, And then, uh, where is it? Verse 7, he refers to them as overseers. So um, in our text today, we're going to see three truths concerning an elder overseer. Number one, an elder overseer is above reproach in the home. He's above reproach in the home. Number two, an elder overseer is above reproach in character. He's above reproach in character. And then number three, an elder overseer is above reproach in doctrine. He's above reproach in doctrine. First, we're going to see, number one, an elder overseer is above reproach in the home. So again, Paul has instructed Titus to, to put what remained into order for the church in Crete. It's a fledgling church, okay? And so he's trying to order it in a way that is going to secure the church's foundation for the long-term health of the church, okay? I think that's relevant for us today, okay? And so the first thing that he, he commands, or that he tells Titus to do, is that he needs to appoint elders in every town. And so we talked about recently in a sermon not that long ago, I preached on um, uh, governance, who leads the church, and I said Jesus leads the church, and elders follow Jesus' lead. That's, those, those, those were my two points from that sermon, Okay? This, this, so this passage, Titus chapter 1, is, along, uh, is together with 1 Timothy 3, the two passages that parallel one another, and they lay out the qualifications of the office of pastor, elder, overseer. So one office, three terms, the Bible uses them interchangeably for the most part to refer to the same office of pastor, elder, overseer, and the two passages that deal with their qualifications are 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. Okay, clearly for Paul, if for Paul, for one of the first things that for the church to be a healthy church is for it to have good leaders. That's true of any organization. Okay, at all. And of course, it's true for the church. And so God, of course, leads the church, but God uses means to accomplish his ends. And so God, God through, the, through the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Paul saw fit to a point that churches have gospel-led leaders titled pastor, elders, or overseers, but they must meet certain qualifications in order to do that job well, okay? And so Titus's responsibility then was that in every town, the church should have elders so that uh, gospel-centered, above-reproach men who can help lead the church, okay? And so that's what, that's what he commanded uh, Titus to, to do. And if you look here in Titus chapter 1, the text that we read, clearly the overarching qualification is the qualification, as Paul puts it, of being above reproach. Of being above reproach. Some translations translate it blameless. Okay? In Titus chapter, in verse, um, in Titus 1 verse 6 there, it says that if anyone is above reproach, Okay, and then he repeats it again in verse 7. An overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. 
So clearly what he's saying here is that the overarching qualification for a pastor elder overseer is that they be above reproach. That means that they are not open to a blame or accusation that, that will stick, okay? That they live their lives in such a way that they are a model of faith and love and godliness such that they, they are irreproachable. Nobody can lay a, a, an accusation at their feet, a blame that's going to, to stick. They show themselves to be a model of what they profess. And, and, and an elder pastor overseer is supposed to be, as it says in Peter, an example to the flock. So they should be a model of what a godly Christian life looks like. This is the overarching qualification above reproach. But we see that in our three points today as specified in three broad areas. And so the first one is that the pastor elder overseer must be above reproach with respect to his home, with respect to his family. Okay, that's what it says there. Uh, Husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Okay, so the question is, is what does that, what does this mean? And so so we're going to try to explain, Lord willing, this morning. The first thing it says is that the, the, the pastor elder overseer must be, it says there, a husband of one wife. A husband of one wife. So this is a widely debated phrase about what does that mean, a husband of one wife. It literally reads in the Greek a, a one-woman man or a man of one woman. Okay? So the question is, what does that mean? Okay? There, there are a, a pretty wide range of interpretations and now, let me just give you a few. Some, some have understood it to say that he must be married. Okay? Some have understood it to say that he cannot remarry if widowed. Which sounds, I don't know. Okay, that sounds weird. Number three is that um, he cannot be a polygamist. I think that's true. Okay? Uh, cannot be divorced is a popular interpretation. And then number five is that uh, he must be a faithful husband. That means he must be a faithful husband. And I'm sure there's more interpretations than that. Okay, and frankly, we just don't have time to wade through all the interpretations because that would be a whole series of sermons in and of itself. I'm just going to say that in my mind, the last interpretation makes sense. That when Paul says to be a husband of one wife, it's in the context of being above reproach. So in my mind, the, 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 the thrust that he, in, his, in Paul's mind that he's giving a husband of one wife has to do with character. It has to do with character. It's in the context of being above reproach. And so I think simply then the best way to take it as a husband and one wife means that he is faithful to his spouse, that he's a faithful husband, that he has eyes for his wife alone, right? That he has eyes for his wife alone. Jesus said to lust after another woman in your heart is to commit adultery with her, okay? So the, and the context is one of character. And so to be a man of one woman, I think, is best to take it to simply mean as someone who lives above reproach with respect to his marriage. They have a proven they, they, he, is a, he, is a faithful and, he is a faithful and true spouse, and if you looked at their marriage, you would say, if, if he's married, I don't think a, an elder pastor has to be married, but if he's married, one of the first places you would look is his marriage. And you would say, is this a, is this a model marriage? Does he love and lead his spouse well? Is he faithful? Do they love one another? Do they care for one another? Are things, well, are things good, good at, the, at home? Is he a good spiritual leader in the home? Okay, I think that's what Paul is talking about. Okay, and so regards to the other interpretations, for example, the issue of divorce. So we have talked about this in some of our conversations. Um, if you haven't been privy to those, we've, we've had this conversation. There's debate over that. The question, 
The question is, what does Paul mean here in this text? And the truth is, is you could argue that Paul said, Paul mean, you could argue that clearly as people have, that it means he can't have been divorced. But to be clear, Paul doesn't say anything about divorce in this text. The word divorce is not in this passage. If you interpret it that way, you have to go elsewhere and draw in that interpretation here, right? And so the point is, what does Paul mean? And again, I think he simply means someone who is a faithful spouse. So again, I understand not everyone agrees with this, and that's fine. But my view is what Paul is saying is that if a person has a, has a proven track record of faithfulness to his family, that is the qualifications that he's looking for. Because if you can't lead your family, you can't lead God's church. Okay? So I think that's what he is saying here. And, and, so, and so just to be clear, right? And so, and so the family is one of the first places you look, right? So a person may not have been divorced, for example, but they have other character qualifications that make them suspect, and they shouldn't be an elder, right? And so it's about character. It's about being above reproach, all right? So the test, of course, so that's the first part, husband of one wife. The second part is that this verse is loaded with controversy, by the way, is that it's not just how he loves his spouse, but also his children. Because the uh, ESV says his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. So this verse is controversial too, because some people, again, argue from this verse that his children must be believers. So in other words, if a man has unbelieving children, he, some people believe that he should not be a pastor. So again, what is Paul trying to say? Well, we just we have to use our best uh, means of interpretation. All right, his children are not believer, Our children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. So debauchery means wild and reckless, immoral, including sexually immoral, um, or given to some kind of substance abuse or something like that. All right, that's what that means. And insubordination, of course, just simply means disobedient. All right. So the question then is, what does Paul mean again? What does Paul mean when he says that his children are believers? So it's a little, it's a little confusing, right? Because in the Greek, the, the adjective for faithful or believing, the adjective for believing can also mean faithful, as in trustworthy, okay? So the question is, it can mean either way. And so the question is, what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that the children must be believers, or is he saying they must be faithful in the sense that they're trust they they trust they're 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 trustworthy with respect to their parents? They they're obedient, right? They're they they they're a faithful child, okay? In that sense, all right. What does Paul what does Paul mean? Again, I think again that context is king. That he's talking about the character of the man in question, okay? And that the and, and again, when he says believing children, all right, but then I think he goes on to say what he means by that. They are believers that is be- faithful in what way? They're not open to the charge of debauchery, and they're not insubordinate. So I think Paul says what he means by faithful, not necessarily believing, but, but faithful. And uh, another pointer is just that it, seem, it would seem strange to me for Paul to require believing children when, for example, Paul himself would acknowledge that nobody else can control someone else's salvation. You could be the best parent in the world, and you cannot guarantee that your children will be saved. You just can't. It's impossible, right? And so it, it's, it would seem strange to me for Paul to make that requirement, all right? I think Paul is pretty clear about what he's saying here, and that is he means faithful children because, yes, 
If you are a parent and your children are still in your household, you are the, as the husband, you are the authority within that home. And if your child is, and if your child is living in open, reckless disobedience and you're not dealing with that and they're still under your authority in your home, that is a reflection on your leadership of your family. Right? So it doesn't, so again, I don't think Paul is saying that they have to be believers, but a, 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 when, a, when a man has children and those children are still under his authority within his home, he should, have, he should be exercising leadership in his home such that, even, such that his children are obedient and respectful. Okay? And if that's not the case, then that, does, that is a reflection of the person's leadership. And so uh, it, it, Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 3. If he does not properly care for his household, how can he care for the household of God? And so for per, and so. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. So ministry, right? The, the reason why family is so important in ministry, if a man has a family, right, is that ministry inevitably, inevitably involves the whole family, right? If, it, it, ministry involves my wife. Ministry involves my children. If I don't have the support of my family in my ministry, it's going to be well nigh impossible, all right, to do that well, okay? And so in a family is a man's first ministry, Right? So if there are issues in a man's household, all right, and the man is otherwise qualified, well, he probably needs to take some time and to focus on his household and his home and get things in order in that respect right, before he steps into a leadership role within the church. Okay? Because it, ministry involves his whole, his whole family. All right? And your family is your first ministry. Your family is your first ministry. You know, and so, and, and you know, you know, there are, there's a balance to be sure, but nobody wants to be guilty of sacrificing your family on the altar of ministry, which has happened, okay? And so your family is your first ministry, your family comes first, and your family is your test, uh, the first test of being, uh, being qualified to be a pastor, elder, overseer. So number one, an elder overseer is above reproach in the home. Number two, an elder, elder overseer is above reproach in character. He's above reproach in character, verses 7 and 8. An overseer is God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Okay? So there's the home, and then there's his personal character. Again, above reproach, blameless. He's repeating these things again. And he's describing what it looks like to be above reproach and what it looks like to be blameless. Okay, and he gives two strings of qualities in verses 7 and 8. Negative and positive. What an elder shouldn't be and then what he should be. Okay, so we're just going to look at, at each of these. The first one is that he shouldn't be arrogant. Okay, now, and by the way, when I'm talking about this, yes, he's talking about pastor, elder, overseas, but this applies to everybody, right? Every person in this room, so all a pastor, elder, overseer is supposed to be is an example of godly qualities to everybody else. What does that mean? It means everybody should seek to model these godly qualities. So this applies to everybody. And if you are a man and you might never have an aspiration to be an elder in your entire life, you should still strive to be the kind of man that should God ever call you to that, you would be such a man who could do that. Moses, was in, Moses spent 40 years in the household of, in, in Egypt. He spent 40 years in the, in the desert so that at 80 years old, he would be the man Israel needed him to be to lead them. So you never know what God's going to call you to do. 
But you need to strive to be the person God is calling you to be at every moment so that when that moment comes, you'll be ready. Okay? The first thing that he says is that they should, we should not be arrogant. We should not be arrogant. Pride is, of course, the primordial sin. And pride is, is deadly and dangerous. And perhaps the most dangerous kind of pride is religious pride. And so in the context of a pastor, elder, overseer, right? Pride, arrogance could be religious arrogance, which again is probably the worst kind. You just think of the religious leaders during Jesus' day. Okay, so pride, pride in one's accomplishments, even spiritual accomplishments, pride as a pastor, you could be proud of the size of your church, the ability of your preaching or other skills, the, the influence that the Lord has given you, or, or an illicit sense of ownership over the church. We could think of all kinds of reasons why someone would be proud, proud. but pride is dangerous to all and it's especially to elders. Elders and all people must not be arrogant. We must be humble. Okay, the second thing is that um, the pastor, elder, overseer must not be quick-tempered. Okay, this is true. James, right, says uh, be, be uh, uh, slow, to, uh, slow to speak. How's it going? Uh, slow, to, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Right? This is, this is he must not be quick-tempered. By God's grace, the pastor and all people must be in control of ourselves. Right? If we are prone to angry outbursts, or lashes with the tongue, or blurting out unbecoming things when someone did something we didn't like, all right? We're not, we're not there yet, all right? We should not be quick-tempered. We should be able to control ourselves, okay? We should be patient. We should be long-suffering, all right? We should be able to endure criticism. If you're a pastor, if you're an elder, you have to be able to endure criticism. Believe me. Because you will be faced with decisions that no matter what you do, someone's not going to like it. In fact, just about every decision you make is going to be like that. Some of y'all want to be pastors? I'll trade. It's hard. You, gotta, you can't be quick-tempered. You've got to be able to handle criticism. you just got to be patient. You've got to just take it on the chin and keep on going. Because we've got work to do. We got a job to do. We got, we, got, we got ministry to accomplish. Okay? First Peter, we got to be like Jesus, right? First Peter 2, verse 23 says, When he, that is, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when you're wrong, you just you, you take it and you move on because that's what Jesus did, because God's going to take care of it. God's going to take care of the situation. God's going to deal with it. And so you control yourself. You're not quick-tempered. So it's not arrogant, not quick-tempered. Next, Paul says, he's not a drunkard. Well, that should be obvious, but there it is. All right? Anyone, if, if a substance controls you rather than you controlling it, that's a problem. It's a, it's a, it's a serious problem. And it's, going to, and it's going to take you down paths that you don't want to go. Okay? And so clearly somebody in that situation is not in a position to be in leadership of the church. That person needs help. The church needs to come around that person and help that person, encourage that person, and support that person to help them get free of that struggle. So that because the, we're going to talk about it later in Titus, but later one of his emphases is being sober-minded. 
Part of being a Christian is that we can think clearly and exercise sound, sanctified, biblical judgment in every situation that we find ourselves in, in life. And if your mind is altered by substance, you can't exercise sober judgment. It's just reality. And so the pastor must not be a drunkard. And, and I mean, alcohol clearly was probably more, was most common then. But that it, it would apply, of course, to any type of substance. By the way, in the past 10 years or so, there have been a sh- sad number of high-profile megachurch pastors who've had to step down because of alcohol abuse. So it's not like, it's not like this is just like an off-the-wall thing, okay? It happens. Nobody is above it. And we must be on guard of ourselves, okay? And not allow the, the uh, devil a foothold in our lives. He must not be a drunkard. The next one here that Paul says is that an elder must not be violent. Okay, well, again, that seems obvious. You know, if, if it's on WMAZ that, you know, the pastor of your church got in a fist fight in the Walmart parking lot, I mean, you may need another pastor, right? It seems obvious, but, and maybe this was a particular issue in Crete. But just to be clear, right? Sometimes, I mean, sometimes a twist, a, 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 Pride, right? In a sense of honor, right? You know, when someone disrespects you, all right? That can, that can really get your blood boiling. And you might feel like you need to, to bow up over it. This, it may sound crazy, but hey, listen to me. It's not crazy. How do I know that? Because not that long ago, I saw two full-grown men bow up at each other over a kid's baseball game. So it happens. Okay? It happens. So, and Christians, and pastors especially, right, we cannot be like that. We can, we can handle disrespect with gentleness and humility. We can be secure in Christ. Right? So that if somebody disrespects us, we ain't got to gum the blows over it. We just take it. Because, you know what? It's not about me. It's about Jesus. In fact, there's probably worse things that are true of me than what that person just said. So I don't even have to get offended about it, right? But if we're easily offended about things, that probably means that we're making things more about ourselves than about Jesus, all right? And that must not be the case, not violent. The next thing Paul says is that the elder pastor overseer and Christian in general must not be greedy. The KJV, God love the KJV, he must not be given to filthy lucre. All right? Must not be given the filthy lucre. All right? Love of money, the Bible says, is a root of all kinds of evils. People will do a lot of things for money. A lot of things for money. And in a sad, demonic perversion of things, right, it's possible to make a buck being spiritual. Right? I mean, I can think of a few guys who, you know, Raise money for their private jet so that they could do ministry, right? Oh, I mean, what, what could my ministry be like with a private jet, I wonder? I don't know. I don't think I'll ever know. But what's the point? The point is, is that you can, you can abuse just about anything for money. But that can't motivate the, the, the child of God. It can't. It's, it's risky. It's dangerous. Jesus talked a lot, a lot about money. And the dangers of putting your hope in money and possessions rather than in God. And so we almost we always must be aware of that. 
Okay, so he gives this list of negative things that the uh, pastor or overseer must not be, and then the negatives give way to the positives, positively stated here. The first thing that he says is that um, he must be hospitable. So again, this you could just think of these as the opposite of what he just went through negatively, all right? He must be hospitable, okay? Hospitable is the opposite of arrogant. It's the opposite of greedy because hospitable means that you're open with your life. You, 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 you care for the needs of others. You, you have an open door. You have an open home. You're especially to strangers. You're meeting needs. You're seeing needs and meeting them. You're caring about people, okay? That's, hospitality is a big deal in the scriptures. The book, uh, book of Hebrews says that don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for in so doing, some of you have entertained angels unaware. And so hospitality is a big deal in the Bible. And, and so show love for others, love for the saints in particular, and everybody in general, okay, to be hospitable. You know, that's why I think, for example, you know, uh, moving forward as a church, we want to be, we want to put a lot of emphasis on hospitality as a church in terms of like especially thinking about putting ourselves in the in the shoes of a guest and 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 as and and trying to do everything possible so that as a person visits our church for example in the future for the first time we're doing everything possible to say hey to to show them we've been planning for you we have been thinking about you we've been waiting for this moment that you've been showed up we we want to honor you we want to respect you we want to make things easy for you you know, everything that we can do to be hospitable because that shows the love of Christ to our guests. Just like if you were inviting a guest into your home. All right? So hospitable. Okay? Uh, he also says it must be a lover of good. Well, and that means exactly what you think it would mean. Right? If you're a Christian, you must love what is good. All right? You have to love what is good. That means you don't like what is not good. All right? But, but again, the point is, I, I think the language is powerful, right? Because, you know, you, you love what is good, right? Some, some people, you know, they, uh, an, an, an opposite example of this would be like some people might take some of God's commands and just say, you know, oh, I guess I got to do that because that's what the Bible says. You know, that's not loving what is good. If God says it's good, you shouldn't just be okay with it. You should love it because God is good. And so we, should, we shouldn't be half-hearted in our love for God. We should be wholehearted in our love for God. At 1 John 5, verse 3, says, For this is the love of God. What's the love of God? This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome, Right? If you love God and you trust God, then when God tells you to do something, that's not a burden. It's a blessing because you trust him and you honor him. All right? So we should love what is good, not just be okay with it. We love what is good. Same is true of a pastor. And then the, and then the, the last four we'll take together here. It says he must be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Okay? So, again, these all tie together, right? Self-controlled means that you're in control of yourself. You're not controlled by impulse. You're not controlled by desires. You are sober-minded. You are long-suffering. Okay? You're controlled, upright, and holy. You know? Holy. <clears throat> That's kind of a, in a weird way, right? Calling somebody holy sounds just very antiquated and almost like weird, right? Listen, if you're a Christian... You should be holy. 
That's what the Bible says. You know that in the New Testament, all believers are called saints. Do you know what the word saint means? It, in the Greek, it, all the word saint is, is it is the adjective holy used as a noun. In other words, literally, the word saint means holy one. So in Paul's mind, if you are a Christian, you are a saint, which by definition means you are a holy one. A Christian is a holy person. That's not legalism. It's not Pharisaism. It is Jesus was holy and a Christian is supposed to be like Jesus. So if we're going to follow Christ, we should be holy. We should be self-controlled. We should be upright. Disciplined, he says. Disciplined, right? He's in control of himself. We should be in control of ourselves. We should exercise discipline. Right? If you ask the average person, just about without exception, people will say, most people will say that they struggle with self-discipline. All right? Well, guess what? God can help you with that. We can pray to God and use means and accountability and say, you know, hey, friend, can you help me with this? A good example would be our discipleship groups, right? Why do I ask y'all to join our discipleship groups? Well, because part of it is there's some accountability to read your Bibles. Because guess what? Without accountability, we might not what? We might not read our Bibles. Okay? But we need some discipline. We need some self-control. We need some help. And we account for human weakness by putting ourselves around other people who can help us on our walk of faith. Okay? So these are just examples, but these all should be modeled in a pastor, elder, overseer, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. These qualifications point to the importance of character for the elder. And so again, that, this is the overarching qualification. Character is the overarching qualification. Okay, Titus, Paul was charging Titus to look for such men, and so should we. So an elder is above reproach in the home, above reproach in character. And finally, number three, above reproach in doctrine. Above reproach in doctrine. Look there in verse 9. It says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he, might, he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So an elder overseer must be above reproach in doctrine. If you look throughout the New Testament, especially warnings concerning the future, uh, almost the number one warning that the New Testament gives is a warning against false teachers. Okay, that false teachers would come. In fact, if you go back and look in Acts chapter 20, which is where Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders, the elders of the church in Ephesus, right? He actually tells them that one day uh, fierce wolves, he says, will come from among you, from among them, from among the Ephesian elders. Okay, so there's always a warning against false teachers. And so the converse of that is that if churches are going to be and to stay healthy, they need strong leaders who are above reproach in doctrine. Okay, they're firm in doctrine. Okay, Jesus, and, and in the Bible, there's always a strong connection between false teaching and immorality, which is why Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. Okay, you'll know them by their fruits. And so Paul says here that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. As taught. That means that an elder has to be taught, right? All of us have to be taught the gospel. We're not born knowing the gospel. We have to be taught the gospel, and we have to understand it and believe it, and then we have to hold firm to it. The, the point here is that Christianity is a revealed religion, okay? 
If God did not reveal himself to us, we would just be in ignorance about it, right? But God did what? God revealed himself um, at, uh, at Sinai, okay? He revealed himself uh, through the law. He revealed himself uh, through the prophets. God spoke through his son. And then ultimately, and then finally, God spoke through the apostles, all right? God has a long history in this book of him telling people what he wants them to know. But when God has told you something, that's it. So when God has said something, we then can't go back and tamper with what God has spoken. Christianity is a revealed religion. They must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. An elder doesn't get to make up Christianity, get to make up their religion. It is received from God and from the apostles through the New Testament, okay? And then we hold fast to that, and we cling to that, and we preserve that so that we can pass it on pure and undefiled to the next generation. So Christianity is a revealed religion. It's revelation from God, not the opinions of men. And so part of being a Christian and being a pastor, elder, overseer is that we take what has been revealed to us and we guard it and preserve it so that we can pass it unstained to the next generation. Just as we received it. What this means then, of course, is that Christians in general and pastors, elders, overseers in particular need to be students of the scriptures. You got to know your Bible. That's, that's just all there is to it. All right. You know, and I'll, I'll just say it again. Even if God never calls you to this, why wouldn't you want to have a deep, thorough, full understanding of the Bible? Why wouldn't you? You know, God, you can read a million books in the world and of the making of many books, there is no end. And that was said thousands of years ago. But God wrote a book. Don't you want to read it? God speaks through his word. If you read this book, the law of the Lord is perfect, enlightening the eyes, psalmist said, right? When you open up this scripture and you read it from front to back, over and over, year after year, and the truths of God begin to saturate into your mind, that transforms you. It changes you. You know the scriptures. Paul in one place, I uh, was writing his letter, and he was, says that these things were written down for our instruction. And he was talking about the Old Testament. Leviticus, your favorite book, was written down for your instruction. Okay? When we read the Bible, it's written for our instruction. And of course, a pastor or overseer must be a student of the Scripture. I don't think that means that they have to have had seminary training. But they need to know their Bibles. We need to know our Bibles and be at least fairly well read. Because as a pastor, elder, overseer, they're what? They're charged with guarding the doctrine of the church. Because if there's going to be false teachers out there, which there's going to be, there also has to be true teachers out there who can point out the false teachers. And that's what Paul is calling for. That's what Paul is calling for. There has to be people who know the Scripture. Thoroughly enough that they can recognize error when they see it. They need to be attuned to the truth and mature in doctrine. So you can smell it out. You know, sometimes, you ever done this? Sometimes someone will say something, you know, about God or about something. Lots of times it happens in funerals. And you're like, ooh, 
I don't know if that's right. And you can't, you might not can put your finger on it, but you just, it just, it's got a, it's got a weird smell. It just smells, it smells weird. What is that? That's the spirit. That's, that's spiritual attunement. That is spiritual discernment. That is, that is God saying we should be able to discern errors and understand them and be able to articulate the truth. And of course, the pastor must be able to do that. Right to discern errors, to articulate the core, and even beyond that, some of the obscure issues of the faith, right? There needs to be somebody that people can come to with their questions and receive answers. Or at least they should be, have the skill to be able to find the right answers with some research and study. This, of course, means that the elder pastor overseer also must be courageous, right? Because what does Paul say? Right? He says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction. So he must be able to give instruction, must be able to teach. That's what it says in 1 Timothy 3. Must be able to teach others. And also, he says, must be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Right? You know? Um, it takes, you know, because we live in the rural south and there's the 11th commandment, thou shalt not hurt somebody's feelings. Right, that we're not used to this rebuking part. And of course, everything should be done, of course, in gentleness and in love. But, there, but we cannot, you cannot underestimate the danger of false or sloppy doctrine within the life of the church. It's just, it's dangerous. Okay? And so, we, you know, we must lovingly and gently correct False doctrine and false teaching, okay? We must do that. If you hear something from somebody that you love, and it's not right, yes, be discerning, yes, discern the right time and place about it, okay? But don't let someone you love go on in spiritual ignorance about the truth. You know, sometimes, <clears throat> look guys, look, we, what I'm saying is we need to reach a, a place in spiritual maturity to where I should be able to be corrected without blowing a lid and leaving the church. And so should you. We should reach a place in spiritual maturity where if I'm in a Bible study and I say something, and you, you should be able to say, Hey, Chad, uh, that's, not what, that's, not, that's not exactly right. And me say, okay, let's look at it, and we'll talk about it, okay? You know, we should be able to do that. We should be able to push one another. We should be able to challenge one another. We should be able to say, hey, look, this is what God has shown me, and hey, look, this is what God has shown, this is what God has shown me, and we talk about it. And we say, you know, you know, I think this, and I think this, and you, you work it out, and you wrestle about it, and you mature together in growth. But, one, but, but yeah, we need, we, need, we need to get to a place where we can do that for one another, to love one another. All right, to speak the truth in love, all right? And there's a right and wrong place and use spiritual discernment, but what I'm saying is that we need to be willing to do that, to love one another enough to speak the truth in love to one another because the truth is important and the truth matters. And part of Christian love is to tell one another the truth, all right? Um, most of the time, it's, most of the time in church life, it's not going to be that big of a deal, you know, you, you, you talk about it, you work things out. Most of the things, most things are not going to be a big, big deal. Sometimes things will be a big deal. Sometimes somebody will have a settled conviction that 
is against the doctrines of the church, and then that person needs to be confronted. And if they're spreading those doctrines, and unrepentantly so, they will need to be removed from the church. That will, from time to time, have to happen. Okay? There are things there are, that we should hold doctrines to the firm, with the firmness with which they are clear in Scripture. The clearer it is in Scripture, the tighter we hold it. The less clear in Scripture it is, the, the, the more open-handed we hold it. Okay? But if it's clear, we, if it's clear, we can't, we can't, we can't bend on that. If something is clear in Scripture, we can't bend on it, right? Um, Adrian Rogers, uh, many of you know Adrian Rogers, one of the most famous American preachers who ever lived, uh, once said uh, in the height of the conservative resurgence of the Southern Baptist Convention, once said it's better to be divided in truth than united in error. And I think that's true. Some true, some things, some issues you shouldn't divide over, but some you have to, because there's some truths that you just just cannot be bent on, okay? And the the church needs leaders and people in general who who have the discernment to discern which those issues are which, and then be willing to say, you know what? Hey, I love you, but I got to plant the flag in the ground on this one. We can't bend here, and we're not going to. Elder pastors, overseers are those entrusted to guard the good deposit. And that's what he's saying here to Titus. Okay. So what do we see this morning? An elder overseer is above reproach in the home. He's above reproach in character. And he's above reproach in doctrine. As we move forward with the church, what are some practical ways that we can apply this passage? Number one, pray for your leaders. Pray for your pastors. Pray for us. We're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to figure this thing out. And it's not easy. Number two, look at, these, look at these character qualities that he calls his leaders to and say, what about me? If God calls me to, we all have, we all have influence. Someone always is looking to us and what we're doing and seeing how we're living out our faith. So everyone's a leader in some sense, right? How am I modeling the qualities that he, that he calls us to. That's what he's talking about this morning. So as we think about this passage, let's pray together that God would lead us to be the church that he's called us to be. Uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for today. Um, we thank you for the book of Titus. We thank you for the instructions that we have received from it. And God, I pray, God, we pray for um, our pastors, God, and and. And our, our neighboring our brother and sister, our sister churches and their pastors, God, we pray for all those that you have called, God, into the ministry. God, it's, it's, it's challenging. It's hard. It's a high calling. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would help them, that they would walk in the fullness of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would grant your churches all throughout this world men who exemplify and, 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 and model these qualities, God, for, for the health of your church, God, and for the good of your people, God, where, there's, where there is holy, humble, godly leadership, churches will thrive. Where there is not that, Lord, they will, they will tear themselves apart. And so, God, I just pray for your church, God, whom we love, the broad church whom we love, that you would raise up such men throughout, uh, throughout the world, throughout your people. And I pray for our church in particular, God, for our existing elders and, and for those, God, whom you will raise up, Lord. I pray for multitudes and multitudes of men 
in our church, God, who would meet these qualities, qualifications, whether they ever aspire to the office of overseer or not. God, I pray that our church would be saturated with men and women who model these godly qualities, Lord, to be a mature, holy people, to be a place where we can love one another, serve one another, look up and look out and know that we have the truth, a gospel that can change and transform lives, Lord, and that we just with, with open hands and open hearts, Lord, proclaim that truth and that together, God, together as a church, God, we are a, uh, you would make us a place that, is a, that, that just models these qualities so that when people come in and look at our church, they can say, wow, this is different. It looks different than the world. It looks different than the family. It's different than the other organizations I've been a part of. These people really love one another. They really care one another. They really are holy. They really are humble. They really are not arrogant or quick-tempered, but hospitable. They really are these things that you have called them to be. God, help us to be that church so that when people meet us or when they come and see our church, they would say, man, God really is there among them. Let it be, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.